This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 531 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Brandon Griffith. Now, Brandon is a law enforcement veteran and was at the height of his physical and mental conditioning when he suffered a sudden cardiac arrest. Now, due to the quick actions of his wife and then the responding crews, Brandon ultimately survived and returned to duty with a defibrillator implanted in his chest. So we discuss a host of topics from the challenges of returning to duty after a cardiac event like that, from the incredible initiative Griffith Blue Heart that spawned out of this trying to get defibrillators in every law enforcement vehicle and everything in between. Before we get to this very powerful conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Brandon Griffith. Enjoy. Well, Brandon, I want to start by saying welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. 
Uh, thank you, sir. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. I can't wait for everyone to hear your story. Um, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I'm out in Glendale, Arizona, which is right next to Phoenix. Beautiful. You're not too far from Prescott, is that right? Oh, no. My family's got a cabin up there. We try to get up north as much as we can to get out of the heat in the summer. Beautiful. Yeah, obviously a very... Uh, very well-known place in the fire service for a very sad reason. Um, so I would love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. I was born in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, my my father worked in IT security and my mother was a teacher. Uh, she retired a few years back and thank God because she helps me out with the grandkids all the time. I have got one sister uh, who works in the finance realm, and uh, I grew up and was born and raised here. I love being a native of Arizona. Beautiful. Well, obviously, we're going to talk about you know your health journey, and there's a big misconception with cardiac arrest that it must be related to heart disease. It isn't the case in in this you know this particular story. So, what kind of sports were you playing? How how did you own your fitness when you were younger? So I am a lifelong martial artist. You know, I started training in Horongdo at the age of four, and it's something that I was very passionate about. I've always been an adrenaline junkie, so I got into mountain biking. I did some boxing, uh, anything that I could probably get hurt in. I was skateboarding and doing stupid stuff with my friends, so I was always very physically active. I got invited out for the football teams and basketball stuff. I never played on an actual team, but we would do a bunch of like pickup games on the weekends and play in tournaments at ASU and stuff. So I definitely had a very big athletic background and I knew I wanted to go into military law enforcement. So I constantly did, you know, trail running, filling my backpack full of rocks, doing burpees, doing all the, the grassroots stuff, your push-ups, your pull-ups, your sit-ups. It's been a big part of my life since I was very little. Now you said Huangdo? Horongdo, it's a Southern Korean martial art. No, I've studied other disciplines from Kali to Sila and you name it. Okay, now Huangdo, wasn't that the one where it's like Taekwondo and like Judo combined? There's throws in it as well? Kind of. So it was found by Dr. Ju Song Lee um, and Dr. Ju Bong Lee, the two brothers. It was actually passed down to the Shila dynasty over 60 generations. And Taekwondo is the sport that derived from Horongdo. Actually, when you look into it, Horongdo is one of the most comprehensive martial arts styles out there with over 80,000 tactics and training. Um, it's it's kind of weird because uh, – the Southern Korean government took on Taekwondo as their national sport. And that's when the, the Lee brothers actually left to the United States back in the sixties and started doing Do. And, you know, it's got everything from go-to-gi, which is grappling to, um, to hand-to-hand to edge weaponry. It's something that I, I trained almost my entire life in until I got into the law enforcement and started training outside the box because I found very quickly how desensitized martial arts have gotten over the generations and how what really works in violence and what does not work on the streets. I was lucky and I had a great foundation, but I had to learn how to translate all the stuff that I learned into actual combat. And that's when I started training with, you know, Craft International and Rigo Durazo. He, he's an incredible instructor with, you know, 20 years in global response security. He's a deputy and stuff. But when I started doing Kali and Silat with him, it just blew my mind. I was like, I've been doing everything wrong my entire life. It's been reactionary where violence is very fluid. <laughs> yeah, so, so talk to me more about that because I've spoken about this quite a lot in the podcast when I talk to people that are martial artists as well. But I started with um, WTF Taekwondo, then went to Shotokan for a while, then went to ITF for quite a while, and actually did well in the sports side, as you mentioned. Um, But then went into boxing, got my ass handed to me, started getting okay at it, then went to kickboxing, got my ass handed to me, started getting okay at it, went to jiu-jitsu, 
repeat and you know rinse and repeat so there was a lot of a lot of undulation a lot of as you said working out what really worked for me james gearing my body type my aggression level um what were some of the humbling moments where you met a different style and and you know you you were at a high level in the art that you were in and all of a sudden you realize okay there's there's holes in my game yeah, I trained in Horongdo since the time I was four until I was going into law enforcement. And I actually, my training, my SWAT lieutenant told me, hey, you got to go to this class. It's a knife seminar with this guy named Riga Durazo. And I was cocky. I was like, I've been doing knife tactics and teaching knife defense for years. And I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll take a look at it. And I, I was not humble. I was not in the right state of mind. And I went in this class, and next thing I know, I just – my head exploded. I could not believe what I was seeing and how quickly everything that I had been taught and fundamentally worked on my entire life was just broken down. I was knocked in my ass. I was taken out. I was stabbed. I don't know how many times in training. And I looked at Rigo and I said, I have got to, I've got to train with you. I got to, I don't care what it takes. I'll meet with you. I'll drive wherever. Let me start training with you on a private level. Cause I, as a, as a martial artist, it's something that I had to I had to overcome and I had to learn. I had to figure out how to be the best version of myself. So I started looking at Kali and Sealot, learning how to learning how to cut down the tree branches, learning how to how to make things flow and how to make things work when you're actually fighting somebody. Because I mean, you know, Hondo had a lot of joint locks. Hondo had a lot of arm bars. It had a lot of you know kicks and strikes. But when you're fighting somebody who's high on meth who doesn't have the same pain threshold as you, it's a little bit differently when you're trying to make it work, trying to get that jujitsu hole, trying to get that grappling through. You have got to, you can make it work. You have got to train your entire life to make it work effectively in actual combat. When someone's, someone's shoulders dislocated and they're still flinging at you and they're naked, it's a little bit different. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I, learning how to actually break down somebody chemically, how to get through, how to cut them down, how to, how to work in that in that realm, learning with Kali and Sealot, just it changed the way I do everything. It, it changed the way I present my firearm. It changed the way I do edge weaponry. It changed the way I did structural alignment combat principles. And I, I fully accredit that to Rigo Durazo and the training he's given me. And then what organization is that? Uh, so that would be TacFlow Academy now, formerly Craft International. TacFlow Academy, brilliant. All right, did you ever train under Danny Nosanto? Ever go to any of his seminars? I have not. Okay, just wondering. I went to one of his. I mean, obviously, he's one of the one of the gurus when it comes to Kali and Silat as well. Um, all right. Well, then, what about career? When you were school age, what were you dreaming of becoming? Was it always law enforcement? You know, growing up in the martial arts world, I was always around uh, cops, firefighters, and military. I knew I wanted to go into public service. You know, it was ingrained in me from a young kid, which is weird because my family. I'm. I was kind of the black sheep. Like you know, my father was into computers. My both my my grandfather and my great grandfather were engineers. My mom was a teacher. My sister went into finances. So nobody was really into the the law enforcement side of things. And I knew I, I wanted to go into the Marines, and I wanted to get into law enforcement. I kind of had my my path set. But in my youth, I was a big troublemaker. I got in all kinds of trouble. At one point, I got the bomb squad called to my school in sixth grade. <laughs> like it, it my. My life, I didn't know if it was going to work out that way, but I knew I was at least going to try to do the military. And then I met my wife in high school, and she was my high school sweetheart. And I knew that I did not want to be away from her, let her get away from me. So I decided to quickly change my focus to strictly law enforcement and forego the military path so I could stay home and be with her. And uh, I knew I wanted to go into law enforcement, but I wasn't old enough yet. So I went into private security, and I became an emergency medical technician, and I started working towards my medic patch. When uh, when I was about twenty and a half, I started going through and got accepted and in, into the into the law enforcement world. 
Uh, it's funny how uh, how that training kind of factors in later. So um, one thing that's very, very frequent in a lot of the people that come on the show, especially people that, you know, maybe struggle a little mentally further in their career, is an element of trauma in their upbringing. When you look back retrospectively, were there any parts of your upbringing that you would look at as maybe one of the foundations for some compounding mental health struggles later in life? Uh, you know, it, cardiac cardiac arrest has had a profound impact on me, and it's something that I, that affected me very young. I mean, the first time I did CPR on somebody, I wasn't even a man. I was working at a hotel, and uh, I, I guess collapsed. And one of my buddies called me and said, "Hey, I called 911. They said it's going to be a bit, but they got a fire. They got the fire department coming. You you were a lifeguard, right?" I said, "Yeah." So I ran over there. I jumped on the guy's chest, and this is back when you know CPR was a joke. I think at the time it was either five to one or if it was fifteen to two or whatever it was. And I, I worked on him as hard as I could, and I there was he'd already been down for nine and a half, ten minutes before fire and EMS got on scene. And while I was working on him, his, his wife and his daughter came up while I was doing CPR on him. I mean, here I am, I'm in high school, and I got to look this four-year-old in the eyes and watching her watching her face watch me do compressions on her dad and give him mouth-to-mouth was something that, that was burned inside of me. And then a few years later, I had an uncle go into cardiac arrest. Um, lucky for him, he was an ear, nose, and throat doctor. He collapsed in an OR. What better place to, to go down? He was quickly resuscitated and saved and found out that he's got something called ARVD, which I will get into later on. But um, then one of my buddies in college died from cardiac arrest. Uh, one of my coworkers, he played for the Hawaiian Warriors, and he was home playing basketball at the gym on Christmas break, and he collapsed, and nobody knew what to do. He didn't make it. I mean, I just I, working in private security. I, I did CPR. I don't know how many times before I even became a police officer. So it kept reigniting the passion. I wanted to save lives. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to do more. But I'm an adrenaline junkie. I wanted to help people. I wanted to use my martial arts. I wanted to do everything I could. I didn't want to just be in the medical side. I didn't want to just be in the law enforcement side. So I was trying to find a way to do both, and it kind of grew from there. Beautiful. Well, then walk me through that journey into law enforcement. So, you know, what was your, you know, how did you finally find a department? And then what was that actual academy like? You know, what was the bar set physically as far as uh, conditioning and then defensive tactics as well? So it's kind of weird. You know, this time our country was going through just the beginning stages of the worst recession since the Great Depression. So this is 2008. As soon as I was old enough to test, I did. And at the time, my mentality was, I'm going to go to Phoenix PD, the, the, the biggest name in town. Let's see what I can do. And I tested with like 800-something applicants, and I ended up making number one on the list, and I got hired. And they told they, they signed me up in my academy class. They told me my start date. They got me on the payroll. I quit my job working in the private security, and I was all set to go. And like about a week or two right before the academy started, they called our entire class and said, hey, we got hit with a hiring freeze. We're laying you guys all off. So I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> this, is, this is how it's going to start, all right? So next thing I know, I had to go back into private security while I was doing the testing process. And as you know, it's not a quick, it's not a, it's not a quick process. It takes a little bit of time to go through, you know, your, your PT tests, your writtens, your oral boards, your psychological, your poly, your, your medicals, all that stuff. So I ended up getting picked up with Buckeye Police Department, and I went through the the Glendale Community College Law Enforcement Training Academy. And, you know, going into defensive tactics there, it was – this is before I started training with, with Rigo at TACFLOW and Craft International. And the, the defensive tactics that most police officers are getting taught in the academy, it's just a – it's a box to check. It's not very effective. It's like this is the bare minimum you have to have to get out there. It wasn't very 
it's not going to get them through a tap out drag out fight. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so I, I ended up getting picked up with Buckeye police department and started my career out there where I was fortunate. I, I got to work everything from, uh, Field training officer, I did a little bit of street interdiction work. I became a defensive tactics instructor, a firearms instructor. I became a crisis intervention officer, and it just, it just grew from there, man. I, I got a lot of incredible people put in my life, and I got a lot of great opportunities through that department. So back to Phoenix for a second. What, what did your preparation look like that enabled you to score number one on the list? So it, first off, it was the written test, and then you go from there and you do your physical test. And I was not by any means the most physically fit out of all of them. And I'm, I'm a big guy, so when it comes to running, there's I mean I'm six foot four, so you got guys that are just little rabbits that would blow me out of the water. But I could do push-ups all day, sit-ups were no issue. So I mean I was constantly conditioning myself and having doing all the runs in the Phoenix Mountains in the middle of summer and doing all my physical conditioning. I was big into weights, man. Back in you know high school, I was in the Thousand Club, which is where you're your squat, your bench press, and your uh, military press all added over a thousand pounds. So I was big into weightlifting at the time. I was in great shape. Uh, it definitely, definitely prepared me for that. I thought that the physical fitness test was kind of, kind of a joke at that time. It wasn't that difficult to get through. Very interesting. Yeah, normally I hear a thousands club. I, I think of uh, squat, bench, and deadlift, but that was med- military press. That's <laughs> that's way more impressive. Uh, this was this is in the high this is back in high school and they, they mixed it up with our football team and it was kind of there was kind of an asterisk next to mine because I wasn't a part of the football team and the football coach was pissed about it so he said well you can't be on the wall I'm like what the hell are you talking about I just I, I did it and they're like well it's, it's for football members only so one of the other coaches ended up putting it on the wall for a bit and I, I heard it got taken down years afterwards but they were just pissed off that I could out bench and I could outlift most of the football players <laughs> now what now how come you never found yourself in football being a big guy. Oh, man, I just I loved martial arts at the time I was training, you know, two to three hours, you know, three to five times a week. And at the time I was teaching with with Quadranem, I was going around teaching military. I was teaching law enforcement stuff. I was doing I mean, here I am in junior high and high school doing live knife fight demonstrations at, you know, ASU and all over the place. And that was what I was committed into anywhere that I could challenge myself or, you know, Get, get in the ring and fight with somebody that that was where i was addicted to i loved hand-to-hand combat i loved getting on the mat i loved getting into it and i knew that i wanted to use these decades of training to to help people so with the actual um law enforcement road so you're actually on the job now um were there any pre um kali silat experiences that you had and contrasted after you started training in that so you kind of saw the application of that in the law enforcement realm it did you know before i started training with with rego in 2011 2012 i found myself in several situations where i I mean luckily for me i was very adaptive i had done boxing i had done wrestling i had done horando i had studied a little bit of ninjutsu i had done other training styles so it wasn't that difficult me for me to transition between a boxing or grappling or a wrestling move to take somebody down. But I definitely realized that all the cool joint locks I learned, all the cool arm bars, all the pain compliance stuff does not work for somebody that doesn't want to go to jail and doesn't want to fight. That 
doesn't want to get put behind a cage. When they're fighting for their life, it's completely different. When they start reaching for weapons, and you know, so much of the civilian martial arts is reactionary. If they do this, you do that. And you don't have time to think like that in the middle of a fight. You have to go with what's fluid, and you have to make sure that your body mechanics are lined up in order to, to do anything, whether it's that perfect strike, that grapple, that hold. So it, it, I, I was lucky. I came out on top of all my incidents before that, but I – very quickly started training with Rigo in 2011 and it changed my entire mindset. Just, just learning how to use body mechanics and figure out it became a, the streets became a lab for me. I started going out, you know, every time I'd have to go arrest somebody, I go, okay, I just learned this with Rigo. Let me see if I can mix this from Horongdo with this from Kali or this from Silat. And I, I, I looked forward to getting into altercations. I wasn't trying to hurt anybody. I wasn't starting fights or anything like that, but when it happened, I definitely took advantage to see if I could do this new thing. <laughs> Now, I've had quite a few people on here that do have a jiu-jitsu background, um, you know, whether it's Tim Kennedy or I just had Chad Lyman on, um, that are, you know, working with law enforcement and, and using jiu-jitsu very effectively. Um, talk to, you know, that community about, about this, this new system that you found and, and what, what is that bringing on top of obviously some of the jiu-jitsu that, that some of these agencies are already embracing? I am 100% behind these agencies uh, taking on jiu-jitsu. I am not here by any means to degrade or put down any other system or style. You can make any system work if you train hard enough, but it's just a matter of of thinking critically, figuring out how to make your system work. If you are big into judo or hapkido or anything like that, learn how to get in using your body mechanic, using your shooting stances, learning how to get to your other weapon systems because, you know, there's a lot of times where you expose yourself from what you do in the civilian side versus, you know, if I'm putting my gun towards an adversary holding both hands on his shirt or around his neck, I'm leaving my gun completely open. So learning how to get a hold of those grappling holds, being able to get a hold of somebody without exposing your, your neckline, without exposing your firearm, it, it, it's a trick. It's just you have to constantly train on no matter what system you're studying, keep it up. I applaud all these agencies for going towards jiu-jitsu and judo and grappling and any of the any of these systems, man, because it's only going to make your officers better. Give them more tools. I mean, most departments will train you in the academy, and then when you're let loose, you're lucky if some agencies train in DT once every year or two. Some agencies are very progressive and do it monthly. You know, it just depends. It's kind of a, a gamble on where you end up and who actually prioritizes it. Yeah. Now, speaking of obviously, you know, deadly force and and some of the the dark side of the profession, some of the sacrifices. Um, in one of the, the interviews I listened to, you know, before we did ours, I, I definitely heard a very strong sense of survivor's guilt after the event that we'll talk about in a bit. So you're, you know, brand new cop. You talked about some of the, you know, the, the losses that you had in the civilian world. Talk to me about the line of duty deaths that you encountered once you entered the profession. You know, it's weird, but before I started with the you know, Phoenix Police Department, or, uh, I didn't really start with them, but that's where I got my start technically on paper. So um, when I was in the private sector, I worked at a hotel and this cop used to respond to it frequently for whenever we get calls. And his name was Travis Murphy. And he was kind of coaching me along. I told him that I was in the testing process and he was kind of kind of giving me different tips and advice for going through for the oral boards and stuff. And he ended up making some good arrests. And while I was in the police academy, he was ambushed and killed in 2010. Uh, he did not make it. I never got to tell him that I graduated the academy. He never got to see me in uniform. And it was kind of weird. Uh, fast forward, you know, four or five years later, I end up being the field training officer for his stepbrother. And it was a, it was a crazy experience, but <clears throat> Also, right after I graduated the academy, two of our officers in Buckeye 
uh, were ambushed, and uh, one of them did not make it, Officer Rolando Torado. Uh, the other, my other friend, Chris Paws, ended up taking several bullets and had to medically retire. And that's how I kind of started my career. Shortly after that, for those that don't know, uh, Craft International was originally founded by Navy SEAL Chris Kyle. So he was actually my guru's boss at the time. And he was killed in 2013 with Chad Littlefield on a range out in Texas trying to help a vet with PTS. Um, having lost him and then we, uh, we you know, Phoenix P, John Hobbs, I met him through a couple of different training seminars we did. He was killed in 2013. I, I can't say that we were we weren't friends by any means, but I met him on a couple of different occasions, and I definitely knew some of the same people that he he rode with in Phoenix. And it was it was kind of like, you know one after the other. And then after my incident, we're going to be talking about you know my my mentor died in a motor vehicle accident in the line of duty. He was our SWAT team leader. He was my sergeant, one of my closest friends. I mean, I named my son after him. We we did everything from concerts to martial arts to shooting together and mountain biking. And it, it, having lost him and giving me begin getting a second chance when all these better men than me weren't was something that I had to had to swallow. Yeah, I can, I can see how that would be a hell of a, a weight. I mean, you know, a lot of us have some people we know, but that's a pretty significant list for a relatively short career. Absolutely. So um, you touched on SWAT. I want to get to the event, but just so we set up, you know, the 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 mental and physical place that you were at. What what made you enter SWAT? And then again, talk to me about the 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 kind of entry level strength and conditioning and DTAC when you got to that point. So I, I had always knew that I wanted to become an operator. I knew that I wanted to be a part of it. And training with TACFLOW, I was constantly working with SWAT operatives. You know, Rico would have me helping out with the SWAT school. Or I'd be, hey, you take this chunk, you teach this portion of the class. And it would build up and build up to eventually becoming one of the assistant instructors. And we do everything from force on force, from hostage rescue to barricade situations. And just constantly training in that realm, I absolutely loved it. And I knew I wanted to be a part of our team in Buckeye. So in 2000. Early 2014, they had opened up the testing process, and me and my partner were all about it. You know, we trained extensively for it, and we went through and we made we we made the team. So we made, we made the list, and they were getting us ready to go through for SWAT school and whatnot. So I mean, we had not only you know your written test, you've also got your physical agility, where you're doing everything from um, pull-ups, bench press, your runs. You know, all, all the stuff that you do in preparation for that. Plus, you also have your decisional shoots. You've also got your um, you, your qualifications on rifle and pistol. They also have your oral board, which is probably the, the biggest de- the deciding factor for it is when you're sitting down with the senior panel of SWAT operators who are interviewing you, asking you not only situational questions but they know you they've worked with you on the streets so having them kind of dig into you and do the final vote on it before you do your poly and your psychological and your medical stuff like that that's basically what the SWAT test had looked like and I had just passed it and made the eligibility list and was getting ready to start on the team beautiful so you're in great mental shape you know you're obviously you know a high level performer you're in great physical shape so walk me through you know the event that obviously changed your life so little did I know, a few weeks later, I would be facing medical retirement. <laughs> you know, at 26 years old, I was off duty. 
not not doing anything cool. I wasn't working out. I wasn't, you know, training in the gym or anything. I was reading a damn book. And my wife makes fun of me all the time because I've been shot at. I've been in knife fights. I've been trapped under a vehicle in water rescues. You know, you name it. But I died at home reading a fucking book. <laughs> so you can't make it up. So I, I put the book down. I told my wife I'm going to take the dog out. And I took a couple steps towards the door. And it hit me like a freight train. Uh, it, something was wrong. And I, I could feel it in every part of me. But, you know, when you go through critical stress incidents, weird shit happens. Like, you know, you get time distortion, and auditory exclusion, and you get tunnel vision, and you lose fine motor skills when you get adrenaline dumping and dopamine. All this stuff is happening. So it, it felt like my heart couldn't recover. I don't know what it was. You ever had someone jump out and scare you? You get that, that skip beat in your chest? Imagine that flutter happening nonstop and there's nothing you can do about it so even though i collapsed within a second second and a half everything just slowed way down for me and my wife turned around and i could see her face i mean just that that pure terror she knew instantly something was wrong she said my face was the darkest purple she'd ever seen like someone choked a smurf or something so i'm sitting there i collapse into my bookshelf and the entire time I'm trying to force myself to breathe. But when you're in cardiac arrest, it's physically impossible for your lungs to expand with oxygen. Your alveoli can't take it in. So I was just basically convulsing or almost not quite a seizure, but just in agonal breathing, trying to breathe, going <laughs> trying anything I can, but no air's going in. So I collapse into my bookshelf. My wife tries to brace me. She's only like five foot three. I topple right over her and put my head in the wall. And it couldn't have been right where the drywall was. It had to be right on the corner of the closet where they got that little metal beam. So I crack my head open. I fall to the ground on my hands and my knees. And that's when I started experiencing the, the vision issues. My vision was this dark, dark purple. I'm looking out in my hallway and it's fluttering. But, you know, it's not like I'm looking through the coffee straw. It's not like your normal tunnel vision. It's this dark, dark purple. And it was going down now. The doctors that I work with have explained to me that that was the blood, gravity taking the blood away from my brain and my, my eyes because my heart was no longer pumping brain to my to the rest of my body. It was basically draining out, and that's when I died. I dropped right there. I collapsed. My wife, absolutely incredible. She was on the phone with dispatch on 911. She had her phone on speaker. She rolled me on my back. She started doing CPR on me, and after a while, she wasn't getting the depth she wanted to, so she actually put my feet up on the couch in what's called Trendelenburg. That way, all the oxygenated blood that was already in my leg had gravity forcing it down to my core. And, you know, it's 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 amazing. Since since my incident, I've been able to work at the CPR University. I've been able to work with, you know, cardiac organizations around the world, and we can't get ER doctors to think like that. And my wife was that quick in thinking and putting my feet up on the couch during this incident. So she's working on me for four and a half, almost five minutes before the first responder arrives. It's a fellow police officer. She takes the dog out, opens the door. He comes in, sees me on the ground, lifeless. Does an amazing job. I mean, he, at this time, he's doing cardiocerebral resuscitation. He gave it everything he had and worked on me for several minutes before fire and EMS came. They got on scene probably around the nine and a half minute mark. Uh, they dragged my body in my living room where they got more room to work. Uh, they IO drilled me. They you know put the OPA in, busted my lip open. They did a great job. I think according to their log, they worked on me for, I don't know, eight, eight minutes, something seconds. But all in all, I was dead for 16 and a half, 17 minutes before I, they got my pulse back. Uh, I got Rosk. I, I sat up. I started pushing the guys off me. That's when my wife said, you know, don't leave me. I, she told me I looked her straight into her eyes, down into her soul, and told her I'm not. I won't. And I collapsed backwards again. And, you know, the, the guys, I don't remember anything from 
that point except for pain. You know, my head hadn't been oxygenated properly for 16 and a half minutes. So with every single heartbeat, it just felt like someone was taking a sledgehammer in my head. Uh, my arms and legs, you know, when you fall asleep on your hand and they get that painful tingling, it was like that on steroids. Uh, my chest had been hurting from all the compressions. It had a newfound pop in there. My lip had been busted open. I could feel the pain in my leg where they IO drilled me. I, I just remember... I remember that pain, and I remember feeling the sway of the gurney, and I could hear their, the footsteps in my rocks in the front yard. And according to the crew, they're great They're great guys. I got to meet up with them after my incident. I was cracking jokes in the back of the ambulance, calling them hose draggers and talking shit, and they, they said it was a good time. I ended up waking up in the hospital, and it's the next five days where I was – my brain from the hypoxia was just – I was going in and out of consciousness and kind of resetting. And I remember very little from the hospital. I have clips and memories and some intimate moments with my wife making fun of me, but – I put a defibrillator in my chest and they ran every single test on me you could possibly imagine. Uh, they could never find a diagnosis for why I went into cardiac arrest. My heart was extremely healthy. There was no electrical issues. They broke my blood down to chromosomic levels with no genetic mutations. We may never know why it happened or it, if it's going to happen again. So at this point, I'm 26 and I'm facing medical retirement. It was, it was, it was definitely a, a, a mind fuck. <laughs> Now the the medics they say they had V-fib on the monitor when they got to you. Uh, so they ended up giving me epi when they got on me. I I was told that I was in V-fib, but I never got to see that strip of me actually in ventricular fibrillation at the time. Hmm, interesting. Now I'm gonna open the door. We talked about this before we started recording. You had a, a spiritual experience. Um, obviously, as you said, you were down for a long time. I'd love to hear the physiological explanation of, you know, what a lot of uh, neuroscientists are agreeing what happens with, to us when we die. And then, you know, wherever you want to go as far as your own personal one, and you talked about writing, you talked about, you know, keeping some of it to yourself. So wherever you want to go, I'll, I'll give you the mic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a hard thing to talk about. You know, it's one of the, it's your most intimate moment in your life. And I personally, with the experience I had on the other side, I don't know if I'm supposed to share it or not, <laughs> but I've, I've done extensive studying. I'm not a physician by any means. I mean, I didn't even get my, my medic patch, but I have talked to several physicians that have studied near death and I've talked to a lot of survivors, not only in the field as a police officer, but I've connected with cardiac arrest survivors from around the world, and I absolutely love the community. Being able to talk to them about what we experienced when we died is something that's very, very intimate and uh, reaffirming. So it's weird because, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different studies on near-death experiences, and you always you hear all the, all kinds of weird shit. You know, I, I saw the light. I saw my light flash before my eyes. I was in surgery, and I floated above the, the – the table and I saw this and then one of the physicians I talked to did a study when he had patients code on the table he would actually put a picture above the light over the surgical table and he would ask them afterwards well when you're floating above did you see anything above there and I think he said once or twice people actually got the picture right it was a blue bird holy shit so a couple of them actually had gotten that right but he said for most part almost none of them were able to identify anything in that picture but there's kind of a from what I understand on a biological and a physiological level, 
I, there's a seven minute mark where there's a threshold of what happens in death. And in that first seven minutes, your body and your endocrine system are still able to process chemicals that your body makes from dimethyltrimine to cortisol, the dopamine, adrenaline, what have you. But from what I'm told after that seven minutes, it's physically impossible for your body to break down and be able to process those or extra neurons firing in your brain or anything like that. So when I talk to people, especially survivors, it's always interesting. I always ask them, you know, how long were you out? And most of the time, if they were resuscitated within that first seven minutes, that's where you hear those stories of I floated above the room. I saw my life flash before my eyes. I did this. But the ones that I talked to that were dead longer than that seven minute mark, they all went to this this dark, surreal, calming place. And it's it's something that I experienced myself. I'm not going to go too much into it, but I, I remember this this calm, this relaxing most surreal feeling man there was no hint of fear there was no stress there was no anxiety it was the greatest feeling i ever felt and i remember still being me and it's something that always comforts me knowing that when you die you're still you you're not just you don't just go into this this sleep-like state which you hear some people talk about um you you can kind of for those that have died and come back it sometimes you can close your eyes and you can you can take a deep breath and feel it kind of lulling you back like it's always with you and that's it's it's something that it's weird I had, I had more of an experience on that side but i definitely like to talk to other survivors that were dead longer than that because they i've had other survivors that were out longer than you know up to up to a full hour and they were put on ecmo or in a comas for periods of time and they they reported seeing family members they reported talking to other people i i had i had a conversation with somebody i don't know if it's god i don't know if it's a guardian angel a family member i don't know who it was but i had a very intimate conversation that is going to stay with me the rest of my life and i will tell you that I was told to earn it. I was told to to earn my second chance at life, and that's something I intend to do. You know, we're all going to die. I intend to deserve it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's so powerful, and thank you for sharing what you shared. I mean, I, you know, I appreciate you being, you know, so honest with that. One, when we spoke before and you gave me, you know, more of the story, I mean, it really does mirror what I hear so many people experience when they do psychedelics. And again, you know, yours is very different you literally were dead <laughs> so you know but i feel like that's what because they always report i was still me but i was just my consciousness and you get this over and over. it doesn't matter who it is you know so i think that's very very um what's the not word encouraging but um I'm blanking on the word I'm looking for now, but you know it it, it really comforting. comforting that's exactly the word thank you it really is because I, I- I definitely believe in God, man. When you, I know there's something after this life. I have no doubt in my mind because I, I, it's hard to describe because it, it's you're on a completely different plane of existence. You're you're somewhere else, and to, to try to describe that to somebody that hasn't experienced it, it's almost impossible to find the words, bro. Like it's 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 not chemicals i know for a fact that i wasn't just there was there was neurons firing in my brain or i was having a trip from chemicals dumped in my body i know it wasn't that i i went to somewhere else because as soon as i was brought back it was like a light switch it just right back into my body and that pain i i i left that other plane of existence and you know i know that it, I, I i'm a religious person i believe in god and i know that there is something after this life and it definitely brings me a lot of comfort i I, I made peace a long time ago that I could die young, and I never had a fear of death. But having actually going through it now, I just want to make sure that I do enough for my my kids and my wife before, and I make a big enough dent on my mission in life before I get taken out the next time. 
Absolutely. Well, again, thank you for that. Um, so you talked about, you came back, you were aware of, you know, the medics working on you, the crunching of the, the rocks in front of your house. And then you said there were several days after that where, you know, it went away again. So when you came out after that, that second time, after those few days, what was that mental and physical journey like for you post cardiac arrest? Uh, talk about a roller coaster, man. So not only are you just happy to be alive, you know, waking up to my wife in tears, hugging me and kissing me, telling me what happened. I was like 10 second time. I was in and out of consciousness for days. And I, I remember clips waking up at one point and then, you know, half the PDs in the room supporting me going back out, waking up. I'm in a different room by myself or my wife next to me. Like it, it one, you're happy to be alive. I'm happy to have been given a second chance and be with my beautiful wife and be able to continue living and making a difference. But you go through this weird – it's hard to describe. It's almost like the stages of grief. Like you go through an anger stage, denial stage. Like why, why did this happen to me? I was in great shape. What the hell did I do wrong? You know, what's – when that? it's especially frustrating when you're a young athletic male and they can't give you a diagnosis. Well, could I have done something differently? Was it something I did to myself? You know, when they can't figure that out, there's so many young survivors around this country that'll never get a die and that may never get a diagnosis. And it, it's terrifying because later on in life, when me and my wife had kids, they, one of my biggest fears is that I unknowingly passed on a genetic mutation that they could not find to my, my son or my daughter. I'm going to have to rely on a complete stranger if they go into cardiac arrest like I did. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, they'll be protected. They'll be with somebody that knows what the fuck they're doing. But it's something that, that, that terrified me. But I mean, here I am. I'm 26. I'm just happy to be alive. And now I'm being told that I will most likely never be able to return to the field again. They're telling me that, you know, no, there's no way you're going to go back to being a cop. They had to put a defibrillator in your chest. That's too much of a liability. Your damaged goods. Like, you know, you're better off to just take the medical retirement. Well, medical retirement wasn't shit. First of all, I was off duty. I'd only been on the job for, you know, five years at the time, four or five years. So there was, I would have gotten like a few hundred bucks a month for the rest of my life. And I'm like, first of all, no, there's no way hell I'm not going to go back. There's nothing wrong with me. Who the hell are you to tell me what I can and can't do? You don't know what I'm capable of. And then it became an anger thing. And then Ah, just it's an absolute roller coaster. I mean, we, I had to fight to keep my job at this point. You know, thank God Chief Mark Mann had my back. I mean, he was the only one in our command staff that stood by me, and he wanted me to help. He helped me go toe to toe with risk management and challenge everything to get back. And I, all these questions started popping up. You know, what happens if you get tased? Does your rig with your device? And I had to go through all this. And you know, there's all the bureaucracy and there's all the political crap that. You have to to balance around with it, and it's incredibly it's a huge toll on your mental health. You know, um, I ended up having to tase myself just to get some answers because I talked to the manufacturer, I talked to the to that makes my device, and I talked to other people, and it's so we don't recommend it. So what happens if I get tased? I I want to know personally if I go down. What's going to happen to me, man? I said, I train OITs fresh out of the academy and they're quick to taser. If they miss the subject and end up hitting me, I just want to know that I'm going to be able to make it through. I couldn't get any answers. So I ended up calling my medic and I'm like, hey, get over here with your monitor. I'm taking a ride. So I did. I took a I took, took both prongs, did a five-second ride and stood up and nothing happened. I was like, oh, well, cool. It happened to be the same day that I was getting my defibrillator checked. So I go in and I sit down and I'm asking a guy. I said, hey, how's everything looking? Everything look good? Uh, yeah, why? I said, well, I got tased earlier. And he's like, what the hell? Are you serious? He's like, did you get me? I said, no, I tased myself. I want to know what happened. He goes, 
you realize you could have reset your device to factory settings. You could have, you don't have the pacemaker function turned on, but you could have turned on the pacemaker. You could have done this and that. I'm like, then why the hell didn't you tell me? I asked you guys for a full year. I called your research and development, and all you would say is we don't recommend it. It's not an answer. <laughs> so they scanned so, the scanned the device, uh, and everything was was still the way it's supposed to be set. Everything was still in their proper settings, but they were telling me that it could have reset things, and it could have, especially if like a prong went into the device, it could have really had had issues. So that's what I was told. But so yeah, it was a long it was a long journey. But you know, after about six months of fighting and being on light duty, I was able to return to full active duty, and now I'm one of the only, if not the only, officers with an AICD implanted on my chest. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny for a couple of reasons. Like things that happened recently that are kind of pertinent. My brother-in-law had a brain bleed and you know my sister called me in you know in absolute hysterics he was in hospital you know it started off with a with a headache and then you know loss of movement and then you know speech and i think eventually even his hearing no his, his sight went the only thing he had was his hearing so he could hear everything couldn't see couldn't communicate couldn't move so i can't imagine how terrifying that was for him but it was actually a, a very very mild venous bleed in between the the linings of the brain i forget which two now um and it was very interesting because actually the medics there and this was in the uk national health um they said well this happens all over the body but not normally in the brain but we've done a full scan they did you know all all the tests just like they did with you and everything was fine so really it was just a waiting game for the body to reabsorb all the blood and he's back to pretty much normal now i just just saw him when i went home a couple weeks ago um but he was like well what can't i do now and it was the opposite they're like you can do everything the chances of that happen again are the same as anyone else in this hospital so you know their their kind of perspective was the polar opposite whereas i could see in lawsuit happy america it would be a very different thing all right i'm going to wrap you in bubble wrap and don't ever move again you know so so talk to me about kind of, you know, working against that that philosophy. And I mean, you, you talked about tasing yourself. What were the steps that you did? How did you build the case to show that even though you had, you know, a, a defibrillator in, implanted, that you were still as able as anyone else on the force to do your job? Well, the problem is, you know, most of the time people don't – the, the entire world does not know enough about cardiac arrest. You know, you say cardiac and people go, oh, you had a heart attack. No, I do not have a heart attack. It's a plumbing issue versus an electrical issue. And you know, I have to constantly educate people. And survivors are so frustrated all the time because it is our leading cause of death. We know heart disease is the number one cause of death globally with 17 million people dying per year and 690,000 last year just here in the U.S. per CDC. Now, heart disease, you know, encompasses a whole bunch of stuff from heart failure to heart attacks to cardiac arrest. But cardiac arrest has got the highest mortality rates. And it, trying to educate people on that, they thought that I was 26 having a heart attack and that I would need stents, that I was for sure going to go down again. I said, no, there's nothing wrong with my heart. And I had to go in there and I had to think outside the box and problem solve because I couldn't find another public servant that went to full active duty. I found a few firefighters that were told by NFPA, there's no chance in hell you're going to light duty, you're going to training, but they were not allowed to return to the field. And uh, it, it drove me nuts. Now, I could fully understand if this was a diagnosed issue like long QT or Brugada or something that's proven proven like wolf parkinson's white that an ablation couldn't fix because we know physical exertion could cause you to go into cardiac arrest again right i could understand that but when you have got an idiopathic diagnosis saying the doctors were idiots and couldn't figure out what happened to you telling somebody what they can and can't do was it, it just absolutely 
grinded all my gears. It was one of those like, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. I can outrun, I can outbench, I can outfight any one of these guys. And you're telling me that I can't go back to serving my community and my country? Who the hell do you think you are? And I, I had to go back in there and say, look, I am safer than any officer on this department now. Not only am I on medication to prevent a, a another cardiac incident, I've got a defibrillator in my chest to shock me out instantly if I do. Everybody else in this department is at the same risk as I am, but if they go down, they need CPR and an AED, and they've got you know they've got a one out of ten chance of surviving this incident. So I had to go in there almost on the defensive, saying, "Look, I'm better protected." And you know, the Americans with Disability Act. This is I'm not even asking for reasonable accommodations. I'm asking just to continue doing my job. There's nothing wrong with me. I can wear all the same gear. I'll take any test. I'll take any physical agility. I'll take any medical evaluation you've got. Until you guys can prove that there's something wrong with me that's going to jeopardize me in this job, I'm going to continue this, and I will fight this tooth and nail. And it was a, it was a battle. And luckily, you know, Chief Man was by my side, and we talked to risk management. And I brought in research papers. I talked to cardiac arrest researchers. I got as much information as I can to say, look, I I have an extra layer of protection that the other officers don't. They're at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease issues. You know, all these every single public safety member out there right now is sleep deprived, caffeine addicted, not getting the workouts they want to. They're constantly getting dopamine and adrenaline and cortisol dumps, putting their endocrine systems into overdrive. Cops, firefighters, EMTs are at a much higher risk for this, but they're not getting protected. I mean, our cops aren't even outfitted with AEDs in most of the country. And you're going to tell me I can't go back to the street when I got one implanted in my chest? Eventually, that approach continued to be successful, and I ended up getting approved to go back to full active duty. Beautiful. Well, I just had a cop um, probably about three weeks ago now who lost his leg after getting hit while working a crash. And he actually returned with a prosthetic. So I think that's, you know, that's the thing is, thank goodness, one good thing that came out of the absolute travesty that was, you know, the wars of the last 20 years was the impact of the adaptive athlete, you know, prosthesis and just, you know, people seeing what they can do rather than what they can't. And yeah, we've got firefighters and cops that have prosthetic legs or arms. We have, you know, definitely cops and firefighters in more open-minded departments that are walking around you know, with pacemaker, defibrillate, whatever it is, because I agree with you. Like, there's no better example than the last 18 months. It's all been about the virus and nothing about wellness, nothing about the obesity epidemic or you know, these underlying issues. So when you're standing in your department, there's probably 40% that are more likely to have a heart attack than you are that no one's talking about. And they're not setting training standards. They're not, you know, putting nutritionists or trainers in there to try and get people. They're not extending rest periods in the fire service so these men and women can recover from being up all night so that their endocrine system isn't completely destroyed. So yeah, it's a very one-sided conversation to say, oh, this person's high risk when you're ignoring the, you know, the elephant in the room, the, the herd of elephants in the room, which is the wellness issue. And it's pushing our public safety members to do more things and risk even worse. I mean, I've talked to, I've heard stories about other survivors that, you know, there was a couple of firefighters that I was told about that survived long QT syndrome that have got, been diagnosed with it and refused to get defibrillators implanted in their chest, even though they know that it's going to happen again, because if they got that defibrillator in their chest, NFPA won't let them return to duty. So I'm like, you you kidding me? Your department would your department would rather have you deny a defibrillator and go back to work full time without a protective layer than to just put the device in your chest and be protected. It makes no sense because now these now these these 
public safety members are at a higher risk. They know they've got long QT syndrome and they're probably going to go down again. It's going to cost that department a hell of a lot more to pay for that person's funeral than it's going to be for letting them go back to work. I mean, it makes no sense to me that you would discriminate against guys with defibrillators. I mean, it, it baffles my mind. Yeah. Well, and the thing, again, you know, I I call out administrations and unions and anyone who's not behind, you know, fitness standards. Like I have SEALs and PJs and Green Berets and everyone else. Lifeguards, you and I were both lifeguards. We were held to a standard every year. If you couldn't do your pool times, if you couldn't do all your training in a certain way, you didn't work. You didn't pass your cert every year, your research. But, you know, our profession, we walk in and many, many departments, that's the last time you're held to a standard. In the fire service, we call it minimum standards for a reason. You just barely have the key for the lock. Now you've got 20, 30 years to become really good and maintain your fitness and your, you know, your strength. And, you know, we don't even hold our profession to a standard. We don't even have a work week for our profession. So, you know, I, you know, the union's great at, you know, being on television and saying, oh, we need a change, but where's, where's the standards? Where, where is it so that we don't have, you know, an environment that, that creates, ill health mentally and physically that encourages obesity, which our shift work does, and gives our men and women the tools to maintain their strength conditioning and their wellness, rather than, as you said, oh, that guy's, you know, got a, an arrhythmia, all right, sorry, you're done, but all you guys that are, you know, 100 pounds overweight, you just carry on, good luck. Who's more likely to drop dead and be a liability, you know? Yep. So, um, going back to the survivor's guilt, so you talked about all you know, the, the brothers that you lost, um, mentally, what was that like? You know, you, you come through, you realize that you are going to make a recovery physically. You have embraced the profession. Like so many of us, it's very easy to identify yourself as a cop, as a firefighter. And now you're not. And I had a kind of glimpse of that with a back injury a few years ago. Um, what was that mental journey like for you? And how did you, how did the loss of your, your brothers factor into your own mental struggles? Uh, it's, a, it's a loaded question, man. But uh, it, it was a, like I talked about that emotional roller coaster again. It was the survivor's guilt again, you know, having buried guys that I considered far better than me. Why was I given a second chance when other guys weren't? You know, when you you talk to people, you know, so many people will tell me, you know, everything happens for a reason. And you hear about, you know, 27,000 kids under 18 died per year from cardiac arrest and it's like well what's the reasoning behind that and you know it's it was it's very humbling being able to be given a second chance and i the guys that i know and the guys that i bury and the guys that i love would not want me sitting there wallowing and whining about why it was me they would want me to go out there and live a fruitful life that they weren't given that second chance to now that's a different issue than my identity crisis because at the time, you know, especially when you're young and you're just starting out your career in that first five to seven years when you think you know everything and that you're on top of the world and you eat, sleep, shit, everything you do about your profession. You know, these guys are hanging out on their days off. They're hanging out with cops. They're going shooting. They're going working out. They're going four-wheeling with other, other police officers and firefighters and barbecues they become the job. And I was in that state, you know, I was all about trying to get on SWAT. I was a recent DT instructor. I was out doing all these seminars and training stuff. My wife was just starting medical school at that time. So she was busy studying. So I was out hanging out with nothing but cops. So 
my identity became too entwined with what I did. And I wasn't spending enough time doing other hobbies. I wasn't spending enough time with family and friends outside of my career. So when I was being told I'm facing medical retirement, it was devastating, man. This had become this had become my life at this point. And I, I had to do a lot of soul search and I had to take back and realize, look, that's not being a cop is not who you are. It's what you do. And a lot of guys say that shit, but they actually have a look at themselves. If tomorrow you get in a career ending car accident, what are you going to do with your life? What else do you have going on besides law enforcement or fire or EMS or military? Cause you know, you never know when your time, when that brain aneurysm or your back's going to blow out, whenever you get pulled, you don't know. And that's what I was facing at this point. Cause I was, I had not mentally prepared myself for what if tomorrow I can't do this job anymore. What am I going to do with my life? And if you would have told me that a few years later, I would leave being full-time, being a full-time police officer to run a nonprofit, I would have laughed at you. There was no way in hell I was giving up my full-time position and working the streets and being with the guys. But it, it took a lot of maturity. It took a lot of growing up for me. I had to look at myself realistically and say, you know, I can make a bigger difference by implementing life-saving programs and training officers on a wide scale than I can individually on the streets. And I had to swallow my pride and earn my second chance at life by helping police departments implement successful resuscitation programs and get AEDs and high-performance training. It, it, it took a lot because most of these things didn't exist. We had to create it from scratch. And it, the more I got involved, the more I started helping other people, the more I started speaking and talking, the more of a sense of righteousness it filled me, more purpose, more more backups. And then it led to even more roads and more opportunities. I mean, here I am sitting here on your show today. Like, There's no way I would have been afforded this opportunity had I not been given the second chance at life. So I had to learn to be adaptive and I had to learn that that's not, I, I'm Brandon Griffith. I'm not a cop. I, I Being a police officer is a big part of my life, but it's not my entire life. Yeah, well, I struggled with that same thing myself when I first transitioned out. But there's a, a phrase that the special forces use a lot, which is the force multiplier. You know, they they don't go usually and fight with soldiers; they go and train soldiers. You know, a whole group of soldiers, and they go and fight. And that was it. You, you and I are on the same mission, but it just looks different now. But the the mission is exactly the same. The mission is to stop people getting hurt and stop people getting killed. And so I think that's. What I see is is when you can grasp that concept and you transition out, whether it's retirement, whether it's injury, whether you got fired, whatever it was, and you can find another way of giving back, another way of serving, um, that is not only a great way to carry the torch and realize that you are doing the same kind of work, but also I think the the altruistic element is incredibly healing when you when you are struggling mentally. Definitely. Like Booker Washington said, you want to help yourself, help others first. And, you know, I, I constantly get contacted by guys that were medically retired or retired and they're going, going crazy, losing their minds, not knowing what to do. There's always some other way you can give back. There's always some other way you can do something to feel like you're still a public servant, whether it be, you know, teaching a CPR or a stop the bleed course or being an actor for a hostage rescue or active shooter scenario, whatever it is that you want to do, find your niche, go help out with the special Olympics torture runs, go help out with, you know, vets with PTSI, go, whatever it is you got to do, writing, go and be with family. Like there's always something else you can do to get over it, but you got to, you got to stop believing the lies that we tell ourselves. Absolutely. Well then you ended up with a very specific place. You yourself had a cardiac arrest, but you ended up looking at, 
training in the civilian world and law enforcement world, equipping law enforcement officers better. So talk to me about, you know, the genesis of that and the journey that you took. Well, it was kind of after my cardiac arrest, I mean, I just wanted to go back to the streets. I didn't want anything to do with it, you know. And I talked to one of the researchers that was helping me get back to the field, and he asked me to come speak at a conference. I'm like, look, man, I'm a knuckle-dragging cop. You don't want me speaking. You don't want me being in front of these guys talking about this shit. I'm like, uh, I cuss. I, I say things that are on my mind. You, you don't want me in front of people. <laughs> and uh, he said, look, just just come out to it, and if you feel up for it, come and speak. You know, I'm just asking you to at least come to this event. We're going to be recognizing some cardiac arrest saves like yourself. And when I got to be a part of that community and I got to see – those getting recognized and meet other survivors and have the chance. They asked me if I wanted to speak that day. And I did. And this 16 year old girl came up to me that had a, um, a defect in her heart. And she knew that she was going to be going, she's going to have an issue later on. And she hugged me and just being able to connect with that fellow survivor and knowing that some crap that I said on a stage made a difference to her and it made a difference to her family. I realized I'm like, man, there is, there is something to this. And I started meeting other survivors and I started speaking and talking about it, but it wasn't until I returned to the field that I'm like, there is something wrong here. I mean, we cops are on scene first 90% of the time when it comes to issues because we're already in the field when we're dispatched, but we're not being equipped and trained with the necessary life-saving tools and high performance training that we need. So I kind of just started talking to surrounding police agencies. I was fortunate enough to work for an agency that had AEDs, but if you look across the board, only about 10 to 15% of police departments have AEDs in their vehicle, and almost none of them have fully outfitted all of their field responsive officers. You know, they may have a checkout program, or they may have a couple in supervisors' vehicles, and supervisors are the last ones on the scene. It makes no sense. Like, oh, yeah, he'll be here after the fire department, but thank God the supervisors have got an AED. So it, it really came to look at the whole system as a whole and say we need to make systematic change when it comes to resuscitation if we're really going to increase it because if you look at the rates you know most of the country hovers around seven percent survival and it stayed that way for decades as much as the uh, as much as the cardiac industry tries to make a difference they're not they're, they we, they are failing to get the knowledge out there they are failing to make the impacts that we want to do and it's because four out of five incidents happen at home and because of the way fire and ems are set up they can't respond quick enough with the proper tools to save someone's life. And that's where the police department can make a big difference. Instead of one crew of guys on a fire truck or an ambulance responding, you've got a squad of eight to 10 in this area that could break. And it, the fire department's got advocate, advocate response, right? You know this. If you're stuck, with, you're with that patient, you are their advocate, and you have to make sure they get the, the fullest extent possible before you go to the next one. You can't toss that diabetic a Snickers and say good luck, right? So the police department, if I'm on a barking dog, if I'm on a civil standby, if I'm on a shoplifting call and someone is literally dying two blocks away, I have to break if I'm the closest unit. So we we are uniquely positioned to make the biggest impacts on survival just because we're on scene in that first one to four minutes where you have the highest probability of resuscitation. So again, it just became, it came down to helping police departments do it because there, there wasn't a playbook. There wasn't anything out there for it. There's, there's several good intentioned agencies that throw AEDs at cops and say, good luck, but there's not, without a system to support it, without the right policies, without the field deployment plans, without the dispatch protocols. And there's some agencies that don't even get dispatched. As soon as it's labeled a fire and EMS call, they go straight to fire and EMS. They're not even notified of it. I mean, I can go on and on, but we had to create and learn from scratch. And that's where 
you know, working with Chief Mann and helping learn more about the, the policy side of it and working with grant writers and working with the dispatch implementers for protocols. I had to learn everything from scratch and start working with these departments because it's one thing to say, hey, you guys should get AEDs. And they say, yeah, that sounds great. How do we do it? Then you have to navigate, okay, well, how are we going to find funding for this? Are we going to go through the city? Are we going to write grants? Are we going to use vehicle replacement programs? Are we going to use drug money? That's that's a whole beast itself. Then it's like, okay, what policies we put in place? Is this a Lexipol thing? Is this a this? But it, it's just it's a whole rabbit hole. And over the years, I I kept dedicating more and more time to this and taking my my focus off full time police work because I saw the value and I saw the amount of lives we could save. And I started helping departments get funding for it and get AEDs out there. And then I saw how the how poor the quality of resuscitation training is for police officers and we had to create our own advanced law enforcement resuscitation academy and i'm probably talking way too much i know you're asking me a simple question and i'm kind of going off on a tangent here no so. keep going keep going <laughs> but yeah you know with when it comes to law enforcement resuscitation you know cops are lucky if they get like a one to two hour refresher every one to three years and most of the time it's a stupid powerpoint they have some clicker mannequins they jump on the chest for all of 30 seconds and they go, Hey, you're certified. Get out there. And every cop out there knows I'm speaking the truth right now. Every firefighter knows this is just, Oh, this sometimes it's just, Hey, sign here saying that you got recertified and they do it. They're not taking resuscitation seriously, but we're on scene first 90% of the time. And so it's, we had to, we had to, bring in the cop factor. We had to make it cool for them. And we took my background working with being a DT and firearms and the tactical side and the SWAT training realm. We took the same mentality we do for active shooter and hostage rescue and barricade training with actors and evaluators and sim rounds and put it towards resuscitation. So we actually have our officers go through not only the classroom portion and the skills building portion with feedback mannequins, but the whole last half of the day is them going through real, they're doing field scenario calls with actors, evaluators, and the feedback mannequins. So they actually have, you know, officer down drills where an officer gets shot. Then the, the blood loss leads to a cardiac arrest. So not only do they have to do tourniquet applications, but they also have to do resuscitation or an overdose where they spray Narcan and the person doesn't wake up. Their pulse is an apneic. You know, you name it, childhood drownings, man, where they got to pull them out of the pool in full gear and work on them. We want to make this as real as possible so they train their parasympathetic nervous system to react at a high peak level when it actually hits the fan. So it just kind of it grew and it grew and it eventually about a year and a year and a half ago, we actually got our nonprofit status and now we're doing fundraisers and writing grants and helping our agencies. It just kind of, I never expected it to be what it is now and we're continuing to grow and I hope we get bigger and we hope we get more funders because we're going to save a lot of lives. Beautiful. We are nonprofit is Griffith Blue Heart. So talk to me more about that. So yeah, like I said, it started in this in this journey. But Griffith Blue Heart now, our board members are all active duty police officers and actual cardiac arrest survivors, and we brought in some phenomenal instructors. My director of training is a flight medic, SWAT medic with you know. 30, 30 something years experience teaching and stuff. Tim Freund is an absolute rock star. And uh, he, him and I created the Advanced Law Enforcement Resuscitation Academy together. Um, we bring in experts from all over the place to help us not only write the grants, but write the policies to work with dispatch protocols, you know, navigating the system because it, it, it's weird. Cops are in this weird middle ground that nobody thinks about because you know fire and ems have worked directly with our medical directors and they've got pierce and all these other protocols and details where they're they're very intensely monitored and then the 
the civilians have got the Good Samaritan law where they're protected if they do something and they're not liable. But cops are right smack dab in the middle where we're not protected by the Good Samaritan laws, but we're also not closely working with medical direction and making these successful programs. So we're kind of left to our own accord. So Griffith Blue Heart is working to fill that gap. We're looking to bring in the researchers to do independent research on our programs when we implement them. We're looking to bring in the medical directors to work closely with our command staff members to implement successful programs. We're looking with to look to get more grants, looking to get more funds to purchase AEDs, but put a system in place to make it successful. And once it's been implemented, it makes incredible, incredible progress. You know, like I, I talked about a couple different agencies that we've worked with. One of them is very small. And I, I, I cite this one frequently because they only have 12,000 residents that live in the city. And we outfitted Sedona Police Department. They only have 27 members from the top down. In the first six months, they had 13 AED deployments, and I was fortunate enough to award five officers for cardiac arrest saves where they used CPR and the AEDs we outfitted them for within the first six months. And you look at the research out there, like Dr. White's study in Rochester, Minnesota, for 26 years, they've maintained a 65 to 67% survival rate when the rest of the country is around 7%. If that doesn't tell you that police resuscitation works, I don't know what will. Yeah, well, I mean, just from the the early, you know, early CPR, early um, defibrillation, you know, chain of survival. My last place protected a theme park here, um, and uh, they have medics in the park. They have AEDs everywhere, and I think nationally, as far as fire EMS, they have the highest save rate in the country, from what I understand. Not when I was working the code. I'm the angel of death, but everyone else, they had all these saves. Um, but you know, and, and so it makes perfect sense to me when you get good quality CPR and defibrillation to a cardiac arrest patient, if it's not a GI bleed or a AAA or a brain bleed or all the things that James Gearing gets, you know, you have a good chance of, of, you know, getting through it. When you're telling me this, the first thing that pops up to my head is fragile eagles, fragile, excuse me, fragile egos in police, in fire, in EMS are going to struggle with, oh, we can't give the police AEDs. That's that's our silo. So what are some of the challenges that you've seen, um, you know, the resistance against this program? You know, for the most part, most fire and EMS members I've dealt with, you will occasionally get the people that you're stepping on our toes. This is our business, you know. But that's such a stupid mentality on it because all we're doing is keeping them alive long enough for you to get on scene and do what you do best. We don't have the ALS stuff. We're not doing IOs. We're not doing the advanced life support. So we're literally pressing on a chest and pushing a button to shock them until you get on scene. And then you guys, the more saves you get, the more successful trans- uh, transports you guys get, the better you guys are looking, the more high, the higher rates the, the hospitals get, the higher survival rate in your city. They're going to make you look like rock stars, and all we're doing is being a mechanism to help increase survival. We're not taking your job. We're not transporting them. We're not doing O2. We're not doing Epi. We're not doing any of that stuff. We are literally just keeping them alive long enough for the professionals to get on scene and do their job. So I... Most of the time, the fire departments I work with see that. Now, occasionally, you will get some old school cops that that came up in a different time that look at this and go, "That's bullshit." If I wanted to be a firefighter, I would have taken a different test. And you get you get some of that attitude with it, but it's like you know, preservation of life is our highest priority. Everything we do is to help save lives. We write traffic tickets to prevent accidents. We stop drug dealers overdoses. I mean, we stop domestic violence incidences to stop that 
that person from being beaten to death or killed. You know, everything we do has got purpose of saving life or making our communities better. Why not take on our single largest cause of death anywhere in the nation? I don't care what community you go to, heart disease is going to be the number one cause of death. And this is a chance for us as law enforcement to really fulfill our oath and make that difference. So I, I'll tell you the number one issue we run into is always going to come down to funding. You know, you especially because you have to change so many minds at once. It's not just a matter of talking to the chief or talking to a training sergeant or command staff. Maybe they're all in, but then the city council members will go, well, that's what we have a fire department for. We're not paying for this. These things are expensive and you have to maintain them. Or, you know, it, you get, you get roadblocks or you might get some success here and you might have a champion behind you. And then that person retires or that person goes to another specialty unit, you start over from scratch again. So it's incredibly infuriating because you have to do it brick by brick, basically, to build that wall up to make it a successful program. So it takes time, and most of the time, this is why the cardiac industry has failed, is because they don't know how to communicate to cops. They don't know how to implement these programs. They don't know how to navigate these obstacles. Coming from the inside, our board members being police officers, knowing how the system works, knowing when someone's trying to brush you off, knowing when to call a chief out, is is absolutely vital to program success and it it, it kind of sucks because you know so much of the focus in the cardiac industry is on public access defibrillation which is great i'm all about having defibrillators at your airports and your sporting arenas events but that's only 13 percent of cases 77 percent happen inside the home and that's where we need defibrillation and most people are not going to buy defibrillators for their house most people are not trained in this so how do we fix that well, we give our fastest first responders the training and equipment they need, which is police officers, just enough to keep them alive for fire and EMS to get on scene and do what they do best. Beautiful. Well, I love it. And just to you know, to give you my perspective, I'm cons- not considering. I'm I, when I have the funding, I'm going to buy an AD for my car. Like I'm a I'm a medic. I'm an experienced medic. You know, if I come across someone and that is a tool that would save a life. I have a tourniquet in my car. I have a firearm in my car. I have all the you know, other things that will save lives potentially. Um, you know, I have a B, not BVM, but a, you know, mouth to mask. Um, and you know, that's the next thing is to be able to defibrillate. So I think it's a great idea. What, um, you know, what roughly is the cost for an AED if you, if you're purchasing for a, a whole department? Are you able to find like refurbished ones, for example, that are lesser? So it depends. So every single department is different, man. What works for one department is not going to work for the other. You know this being fire and EMS. So some departments have other needs than other ones, and I, we don't discriminate. The best defibrillator is the one you have in your hands when somebody's dying. So it, it's you can get them as cheap as like 600-something bucks, and you can get the ones with all the bells and whistles for up to 2000 our job is to work with the police departments to figure out what is sustainable for them and what can be – successful for them because you know some of the defibrillators out there are just too costly to maintain it doesn't make sense for a police department it's, it's okay in an office building if you put this defibrillator there and it might get used once or twice in the next 10 years but when you've got police officers responding day in and day out to emergencies they're going to use it all the time i mean even some of our mid-size agencies that have like 100 to 200,000 people are have 200 uh, 115 to 215 cardiac arrests per year just in their little municipalities so they're going to get used constantly and if the aed is too expensive to maintain and that's the other problem is that 
a lot of the manufacturers don't focus on police. They don't they don't see the value in the program. So they they continue to make money off the public access defibrillator programs and the, and the the corporations which have the money instead of focusing on where they're going to be able to make the biggest impact on survival. So it's kind of helping them. And I'm very happy that there's a couple up and coming AED comp- companies that are coming out right now that are focusing on in home defibrillation and making it cheaper and sustainable. You know, using rechargeable batteries, giving free pad replacements to people. Keeping it under, you know, between six to eight hundred bucks or six to nine hundred bucks or whatever it is now, it's going to be much more sustainable for the average person, especially if they know they're at risk or they have a, a family member with a, a defect or maybe they cardiomyopathy runs in their family type thing. It's going to be much easier for them to purchase that. But I'm trying to get those same companies to say, hey, focus on where it's going to get used the most. Give it to our hands in law enforcement. If you got an AED that's you know one to two pounds that fits on an officer's vest with rechargeable batteries, it's a no brainer to be outfitting them with it yeah absolutely I mean the other thing as well it just kind of struck me I had a uh, NYPD officer actually was he I think New York area I don't know if he was actually NYPD but he was part of the uh, special response team that does you know what a lot of fire departments do so they do the high angle rescue they do the extrication on vehicles um, and you know in that discussion we're like when well, this helps with our our you know community policing it gets positive stories that we do that improves how we look in the media well again if you have police officers responding and saving lives with aed from a public perception point of view that seems like that would be an asset as well yeah i mean look at it i mean last year we had 1100 fatal police shootings across the entire country 690,000 Americans died from heart disease. Where do you see the biggest impact to make a difference? I mean, you want to label us, there's over 880,000 officers across this country and 1,100 fatal shootings happened last year. Look at the numbers alone. You want to talk about public perception. If you can, if we can save a quarter of them, we're talking about, you know, 100,000 plus people that could be saved next year with the proper programs in place. You want to talk about public perception. Could you imagine if a police department started getting more saves and, you know, saving 100,000 plus people per year across this country? There's going to be a tremendous support of police officers. And it's not only great PR for them, but it also shows that we're fulfilling our oath, you know, preservation of life, protecting and serving. What better way to do that than saving the lives of the people we serve? Yeah, well, you touched as well on grants. So again, you know, barrier to entry because someone's going to be financial. What kind of grants are available to police departments when it comes to this type of uh, equipment on their vehicles? Oh, man, it is tough, you know, because right now I've got a line of agencies that are trying to get AEDs that are – I we already breached that door. We already got them in. They want AEDs. They want to get out there and save lives. City councils aren't approving it. They're not funding it. So now I'll say, okay, well, how do we fund it in other means? So now trying to get grants out there, there's so few grants for these kind of programs. I mean, and if they are, it's a grant for like, you know, 5000 or 20000 But when you're trying to implement hundreds of officers, thousands of officers – it's just that there's not enough grants out there for police resuscitation. It's just it's just a mere fact. We've got I've got three agencies applying for the same grant right now, trying to get out, trying to outbid each other to to get these grants. So we need more funders. We need we need federal funding. We need state funding. I mean, look, we spent trillions of dollars last year on COVID, but we lost more people last year to heart disease than anything else. Why is there no outcry? Why is why aren't people talking to their congressmen and their senators and saying, hey, why aren't we funding police resuscitation programs? Why aren't we getting AEDs out here? Why aren't we equipping our schools? It drives me insane because there's not enough funding out there right now to do what we're doing, which is why we became a nonprofit. We're holding our own fundraisers. We're taking donations. We're applying for grants. Anything and everything we can do to get 
these life-saving devices in our officers' hands. Don't you dare imply that people are dying from anything other than COVID this last 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> no, I mean, you're, you're preaching to the choir. I've talked about this for 18 months. You know, the proactive side, where's been the conversation of just making people healthier? One way you affect, you know, a huge way you affect the cardiac arrest, um, you know, survival rate is you stop people having cardiac arrests in the first place. You know, especially heart disease side. I mean, as you said, you have anomalies. You had an anomaly. I've got a firefighter friend who had full-on STEMI. Like he has his 12 lead, full STEMI, looked like a widowmaker. And when he got to the, you know, to the cath lab, nothing. And they, they, I guess, hypothesized that his was spasmodic, like his his arteries in his heart literally spasmed and closed off. And you have these you know, arrhythmias that come out of nowhere. You know, like I said, there's bleed like my brother and uh, brother-in-law had, but. You know, yeah, I mean, the, aside from the anomalies, there's a very, very obvious preventative element, you know, and for us, you know, it's, it's the shifts, it's the, you know, the, the, the stress of the job, it's not enough time off. I mean, there are very, very obvious things that we can do within our profession to stop our first responders dying. Well, that radiates out to the general public as well. So if we want to be able to afford AEDs on, on police cars, well, maybe we can stop people dying by also, you know, affecting from the other side as well. Yeah, there definitely is a preventative measure to a lot of it, especially when it comes to the myocardial side. But, I mean, there's so many things that without any signs or signs, you hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. you got these incredible athletes just dropping dead from it. I mean, but you near know, the electrical side, like my incident, these idiopathic cases where these perfectly healthy athletes and kids are running around just dropping dead, and they were eating correctly. They were working out. They were maintaining a healthy lifestyle. But they're still they're still at the high risk, too. Young athletic males are at the higher risk for cardiac emergencies. And it's, yes, I'm all about the preventative side of it as well, but we know that cardiac arrest is not going anywhere. So why aren't we taking a more aggressive stance to responding to it? I agree 100%. All right. Well, then people listening, how can they support your nonprofit? And then talk to me about coffee as well. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. So <laughs> one, of the, one of the ways you can support us, obviously, is we take direct donations. If you go to uh, www.griffithblueheart.com, we have PayPal set up. We can take payments. Um, if, you are, if you happen to do grants or if you happen to work with an agency looking for a good cause or you work for a company that wants to match you, all these organizations like PayPal and American Express do matching programs. If you donate to us and get your employer to match it for you, it's free money going towards police resuscitation. Uh, another program we love is that, especially in public safety, all cops, all firefighters, EMS guys love coffee. And we got to team up with Real American Hero Coffee here in Arizona to put out a custom Griffith Blue Heart blend. So I personally picked this one out. It's a dark roast. Uh, it is a phenomenal blend. And you can go to Real American Hero Coffee and you can pick up a bag. I will be putting the link on our website shortly. Um, it's absolutely phenomenal. All the proceeds from that go to police resuscitation. So if you're a coffee drinker, buy some bags of coffee and help support our cause. But talk to your senators, talk to your congresswoman, talk about, talk to your police department. Say, hey, are you guys have you guys considered getting AEDs? How can we help? Can we sponsor a unit? Can we talk to some philanthropists? Can we talk to some business owners? I mean, one of the things that people overlook is that hospitals have a vested interest, especially the private ones. Think about it. Every single patient that goes into that into that hospital with a pulse, they're billing to insurance and they're going to make their money back. It makes sense if they were to, to 
up front the cost of police resuscitation programs, they're going to make their money back and then some. I mean, look at them, how much it costs just to put a defibrillator in my chest. You're talking about what they bill to insurance, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And trying to get people, talk to your hospital owners, talk to your to your nonprofits, talk to anybody else that wants to support a cause. It's, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a better cause than our number one cause of death. Absolutely. Well, just before I go to the closing questions, the interview I listened um, you know, that you were on, you said was about a year old. You'd mentioned about looking for another agency. Um, where, do we, where are we finding out? Have you stayed basically doing this full-time or did you find yourself getting back into the department again? So right now I, I have dropped to reserve status where you only have to do about 20 hours per month. So, I mean, I, I still, still an adrenaline junkie. I still love police work. I, I can't quite walk away from it. So, uh, yeah, I no longer, I don't consider myself a real cop anymore. I'm not hitting the streets 40 to 60 hours a week anymore. I'm not on a team. I'm not in the stack, but I, at least being a reserve officer and being able to some capacity does a lot for my, my mental well-being and being a part of the team. Because if you're not, actively with the department if you're not actively out there it's hard to keep your finger on the pulse absolutely all right well then i want to move to some closing questions the first one i love to ask is there a book that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion or completely unrelated oh man so i i'm a big reader i absolutely love it but for our field one of the top books i recommend is extreme ownership by uh leif babin and jocko willick it is probably one of they did a two-part series so far uh extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership that are the absolute best books i've ever written on leadership and accountability and they use their for those that don't know, they were both the ground force commanders for SEAL Team 3 Task Force Bruiser, which is probably the most decorated unit in the last 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they use their real-life experiences as SEAL commanders and put those into the business sense. So it's for everyday people that want to learn how to better themselves and be better, more efficient leaders. Beautiful. Yeah, I actually went to the um, their muster about two months ago now but the Leif's coming on Jocko's been on a couple times already so uh, yeah I'll be getting Leif on soon but yeah I mean that's definitely a a commonly uh, suggested book for a lot of people Um, what about a film movie or documentary that you love Uh, so I'm actually trying to get more attention we need to get some more cardiac arrest documentaries out there so I'm trying to talk to a couple documentary filmmakers now about getting in and talking about some of these some of these issues but if you're talking about just pure entertaining man i gotta go tombstone it's one of my favorite movies of all time but um documentary style i mean i recently watched uh what was it called the the social dilemma on our addictions to social media and our phones and stuff that was pretty pretty eye-opening in what we do (laughs) absolutely well then, uh, next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Uh, I have not checked your list yet, but if you have not talked to Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, uh, the guy is just an absolute legend, and his work helped me so much through my experience. I mean, reading on combat and on killing, understanding the physiological responses to stress that our bodies go through, it helped me process what I experienced in my death from the collapsing to the tunnel vision to the time distortion, understanding what happened to my body, it's pretty intense. And then hearing some of the stories and knowing that you're not alone, Lieutenant Dave Grossman is an absolute legend. If you have not had him on your show, I highly recommend him. Yeah, he's being on twice for that very reason. 
<laughs> All right, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> All right, well then. Now, have you talked to Chris Hoyer yet? No. Okay, so Christopher Hoyer, he's a Phoenix police officer. He's retired now, but he wrote a book called When That Day Comes, and it's absolutely phenomenal. It's all about uh, mental health and his experience I'm not going to go into because it's pretty incredible. Uh, he was a part of a horrific incident and lost one of his buddies, but uh, he's a friend of mine, and I highly recommend bringing Chris Hoyer on this show. Beautiful. I'll give you his contact information off air. Yeah, let's make it happen. Fantastic. All right, well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online, what's you do to excuse me what do you do to decompress uh so i first of all family is everything to me man my, my proudest accomplishment in life is being a husband and father i get to marry my high school sweetheart and i've got a one-year-old and a three-year-old that make life so incredible so it's the most challenging thing and the most frustrating thing at the time they, they can drive me batshit crazy but i love my kids more than life itself spending time with them helps and I'm also uh, a big mountain biker. I absolutely love when I want to clear my mind. I I got to get out on the trails and go go do some downhill. I love bombing down a mountain as fast as I can and hanging out, being out, just being outdoors. Beautiful, brilliant. All right. Well, then, if people want to learn more about the foundation, if they want to reach out to you specifically, where are the best places online? Uh, right now, GriffithBlueHeart.com. And if you are on LinkedIn, reach out to me, Brandon Griffith, and I'll be able to put you in touch with all that we're doing either on LinkedIn or on our website. Brilliant. Well, Brandon, I want to say thank you so much. Um, you know, we've been all over the place from martial arts to near-death experiences and cardiac arrests, but it's such a unique concept. I had a guy on a while ago who um, is bringing telemedicine to 911 dispatch. And so when you call, if it's a site call, if it's, you know, something that's BLS, they say, do you want us to send an ambulance or a cop or do you want to speak to a medical professional? Oh, well, you know, I'll speak to them. They set up a, you know, a very quick video conversation. And then a lot of times they never even dispatch someone like you or someone like me. Genius. And this to me again is another one of those concepts. Awesome. I agree with you a hundred percent. If we, you know, PDR on scene a lot of times before we get there because we're in big slow vehicles, you know, it's two of us. We normally are, you're not right in the car like you guys are a lot of the times. So, you know, there's the having that early access, having that early CPR defibrillation makes perfect sense to me. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for telling your story. Thank you for sharing some of the more vulnerable parts. You mentioned that you're, you're, thinking of writing a book i hope you do because i think your story is very powerful but i just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today uh thank you sir i really appreciate you giving me a chance to to come on air and share and speak to your audience as well man i mean i'm i'm a huge fan of the podcast medium because you get a wealth of information and an entertaining concept it's not some article that people are going to glaze over or some psa you get to really hear stories and connect with people so Thank you for giving me this opportunity to bring more attention to our mission.